that Jesus would bugger off. So, how do we start? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. If you worry about your customers, employees and stakeholders being disengaged, Scott is the person to contact. Definitely he's the person to contact. He's an advocate of enterprise engagement and a speaker, writer and advisor. His book, The Shape of Engagement, talks about how to motivate engagement, what is the psychological basis for engagement and how to implement engagement in your organization. But what is less known, uh, Scott is also a pastor, so he knows about engagement from more than one angle. Scott, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Scott, it's being said that only 5% of people who go to work are going there being engaged. Over 80% go to work to earn the money so they live their life after work ends. What do you think is the reason there? The stat is a little bit higher, actually. Generally, the idea is around 20% of the workforce globally is what's considered to be fully engaged. Um, and then a percentage of them are actively disengaged. Most just do their job. So they go to work, they clock in and they do it. Uh, work has been like that for a very, very, very long time, particularly since the Industrial Revolution, when we went to do repetitive tasks over and over again. There wasn't much soul to our work. Um, our work didn't afford us the chance to apprentice with someone. If you imagine before that, a son, let's say, I mean, we are talking now, obviously, in a male work-dominated culture. So before then, a son would apprentice with his father. Let's say his father was a carpenter. He'd spend his days interacting and being around um, his father in a way that was social. And so it would be a far more rich and engaging form of work, right? Um, the industrial complex, of course, led to this idea of you know, humans being like cogs in the machine. And even though we're now, you know, in the age of knowledge workers, that's still something that is still wearing off this idea that humans are cogs. So for many people, that's what they do. They go to work and they perform a function as a cog and their work might be soulless. They might even have a good job. Uh, in fact, the stat says that um, only 40% of people will remain engaged after three years in their job. And then that number dips sharply down thereafter, that people just get disengaged very, very quickly in the workplace. And I think one of the main reasons is because it's rare when somebody gets to do something that really gives them those qualities that as a human, we are searching for. There's something called self-determination theory that says that we as humans are looking for three things. We're looking for the ability to have mastery over something, autonomy uh, within something, and then also a sense of relatedness or purpose. That is rare in work. It's rare when your work affords you that, and it's a privilege when work does. Uh, and so for many people, because they're lacking that, they just aren't terribly engaged. They just go and they do their stuff and they come home. And I think we should also probably say that they're possibly not even that engaged at home, right? I have three children and while I'm at home, it can also be a little bit like work. And there are times when I am fully engaged in my home life 
and I'm tickling my kids and I'm having fun cooking the dinner. And there are times when I'm not engaged in my home life and I'm truculent and moody. So I think all of us, again, are also vacillating creatures. But by and large, of course, the, 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 you know, the stat does say that at work, most people just go there and do it. And I think that that actually isn't anything terribly new to us. What is new and what these stats are pointing at is uh, an appreciation globally to try and lead employees to a place of enjoying their work and being engaged in their work. Because when that does happen, then there are far greater yields that come from it in terms of productivity and um, discretionary effort and loyalty, etc. Before we continue, I'd like to clarify the vocabulary that we are using here. Because many things that you mentioned just right now are labeled as motivation at work. And you are using the word engagement. Could we somehow reconcile the two? Certainly. And it's interesting you mentioned that because um, Adam Grant, who's a very popular writer these days, he recently um, talked about how he, he thinks employee engagement is a conversation that isn't necessary because we have the term motivation. I look at engagement as a phenomenon that occurs with employees, with customers, with communities, with stakeholders, or even spouses partners, friends, children, or even ourselves. And when we talk about engagement there, um, engagement is a psychological state. It's a state when you are in this place of being together with something, um, focused on it. Therefore, there is a sense of exclusivity around your focus, because if you're focused on it, you're not focused on other things. We're engaged in this conversation right now, and that's marked by us excluding other activities. Your heads are nodding. I can see it. Mine's nodding as I'm talking. We have those behavioral traits that are showing that we're in this psychological state of being together in this moment. This is more than motivation, isn't it? Motivation got us here, but actually we're also focused right now. We're also receiving kind of immediate feedback. Well, this reminds us of Mihai Chinsetnihai's work on flow. But also let's take love. Uh, when two people love each other, um, they might not be engaged like we are in this moment. They might not have many moments where they are fully immersed in each other's worlds, but they do remain faithful to each other. And so now we've got a sense of togetherness that is enduring. That's again, that's not motivation. Motivation perhaps lies behind that. But now we've got something that we would call love, this strong psychological affectation towards something. So engagement is different from motivation. I, I think that motivation is something that causes us to behave in a certain way. Engagement is a state. To engage is then the process of getting someone to be in that state. So if we were to say that somebody is an engaging public speaker, what they're very good at is getting the audience to be together with them to induce that psychological state. And there is a fair amount of research to say that engagement is a psychological state. So I would say the difference is, as I've said, motivation is something that leads us to the water, uh, maybe even makes us want to drink. Engagement is the psychological state of drinking and drinking again and again and again and again. If we begin to talk about customer motivation or stakeholder motivation, well, the technical terms that are used there are engagement. We don't talk about customer motivation. We talk about customer engagement. That's the term. So I think it's expedient to recognize that what we're trying to get to here is something that's a bit broader than just motivation. Obviously, I'm in this field of designing things for customers. And I often see that there are like two sides of customer motivation. One is you should remove the things that are dissatisfiers, like usability issues or lacking functionality and things like that. But you also have satisfiers and engagement is definitely one of them. When I was thinking 
how to define engagement, of course, often people refer to Facebook or other social media. And for me, this is not engagement. This is stealing attention. Yes. Engagement for me was always the intrinsic willingness to return to the offering over and over again. It feels to me that uh, those definitions that you mentioned, and this one might actually be aligned, but in your book, you have also a different definition. You define engagement as the process of making the most out of a relationship. So I think that there's an extra <laughs> thing there that you are yeah. mentioning that we haven't spoken about yet. Yes. So so that book came out just over a year ago. Since then, I've, I've actually developed my thinking a fair amount. I still stand by what I wrote there, but I don't think that's the definition of engagement. I think that's the intention of engagement. Let me perhaps step back a little bit. You talk about users. User engagement is something that's talked about. That's a popular concept. So we've got that, right? We've then got this idea of, let's say, social media engagement, which is if somebody's working anyway digitally, that's probably their introduction to the term engagement because social media, such as Facebook and Twitter, they will give you two metrics generally. Reach, which is how many people saw something, and then engagement, which is to say how many people interacted with it, such as commented, clicked, liked, shared, etc. I agree with you. I don't think that that is engagement. I would rather call that interaction. I think they are social media interactions rather than engagements, um, because I think engagement is a loftier concept. But I would agree that they are interactions that demonstrate some form of engagement because engagement has levels within it. And what we're describing here would be a low level of engagement or what I like to think of as engagement as attention. It's when engagement is around getting somebody's attention. And generally, that's a cognitive process. The, the academic literature recognizes that there are three ways that we can be engaged. One is cognitively, which is we're engaged in our brain. The second is engaged physically. The third level of engagement is like love. It's this longer lasting thing that sometimes is called psychological engagement. Sometimes it's called affectionate engagement. But it's the idea of something having a, a profound feeling in your heart that sticks with you. The definition of engagement in any of those three states is to be together, either together in the mind, together in the body, or together in the heart or the soul. I think the reason why we do that, though, is because we recognize that when we are together with something, we are better together. And so therefore, I think the intention of engagement is to make the most of a relationship rather than having a passive, low-level relationship. And that really is the hallmark of someone who's engaged, right? Uh, an engaged employee is together with their job. But what that means is they really make the most of those hours that they're there. A customer that's engaged with the brand really makes the most of the brand for them. They really get that brand to work for them. Someone who's really engaged with an app really makes that app work for them. They derive every sense of benefit they can get out of it. Someone who's really engaged in their relationship or in their children or in a friendship or in a book, whatever it might be, the driving force here is I want to suck the marrow out of the bone of this thing, right? I want to get all I can get. So I, I would stand by that. I think engagement ultimately is about us maximizing, getting the most out of things, which is why that psychological state is so important because it's one of being focused and really just devouring what's in front of us, you know, giving ourselves to it. We talked about engagement. What are the consequences of disengagement? What is the dark side of this? 
Oh, wow. So there aren't, well, I like the fact you say there's, what's the dark side of engagement? I mean, if we think about engagement, there would be two dark sides. The negatives of disengagement, that would be one way of looking at it, when people are actively disengaged. So as much as an engaged person uses their energy for the company, a disengaged person uses their energy against the company. So when somebody becomes disengaged from a relationship, they actively attack the relationship. Just a point here. So you're talking about three possible states, right? One is engaged, unengaged, and disengaged. Or the, the, the other two are synonyms. So I would say unengaged would be ambivalent, not, not bothered. Gallup, the think tank, is the most prolific publisher of work on engagement. And they ha- issued a land- landmark report that became a book in 2007 called Human Sigma, which really lays out the massive data. 214,396 business units were measured during that. So a massive amount of data to create what was called this kind of human sigma score. And they talk about engagement as someone being highly engaged, just engaged, average, then you've got unengaged. And then sometimes they talk about people being disengaged. So there would be a difference, right? Someone being disengaged is now they are actively pushing against. Um, These would be what are called detractors, people who actively go out of their way to create a problem for you. So that would be one dark side of engagement. If you don't engage people, and in fact, if you do something bad, people might disengage against you, which now means that they are using their energy. They're together with you, but in a negative way, right? So now you've got people picketing a shop or picketing a church because of its you know, hardline fundamental stances or picketing a government. These people are very engaged. It just happens to be engaged in the act of being everything that is against you, right? The other dark side of engagement, and this is what I'm far more interested in, and I have some personal experience of it, is when engagement is overused in a manipulative manner. If we think about things such as influence, persuasion, which are skills that all of us are using, the foremost social thinker in this area is Robert Cialdini. Um, he came up with what what, what he um, called his six principles of influence, although initially he called them his six weapons of influence. He changed them to principles later on, but initially he called them the six weapons of influence. In his books, but in his initial book on it, Influence, Science and Practice, he defines them and shows how to defend yourself against them, recognizing that these are principles that are used to manipulate. And he talks about propaganda, he looks at Nazism and communism. And, and so what you've got with engagement is this dark side where the principles of getting somebody to be in that emotional, psychological state are abused and you use it to manipulate them. I call that enslavement as opposed to engagement. And in my study of it, it's fascinating that it uses the exact same principles of engagement, albeit it it takes them further than they should go. So for instance, A principle of engagement is the idea of sharedness, which is when you feel like something is shared between you and someone else, whether that be a brand or an idea or a company or whatever it might be, you become more engaged by it. And so sharedness creates a sense of us. But if you take sharedness too far, us at some point becomes us and them. And this now becomes unhealthy. You take that to the extreme and now you've got any form of totalitarianism that you want to find. The same way that it demonizes the them is the equal and opposite force of such a strong sense of belonging 
and superiority with the in-group. So now you've got what psychology would call in-and-out groups. So I find that particularly fascinating because I experienced it in religion of all places, right? So I find fascinating the way that people can use techniques that are really positive, but then take them too far, which explains to us why rational humans get caught up in all of this stuff, right? It's why rational humans became caught up in Nazism or get caught up in cults or get caught up in bigotry or whatever it might be is because these are really healthy social concepts that just go too far. So it's surprising, I would think, that would be applying the principles to some other field that would create this. But you are saying that it's taking them too far, basically. So not, not so much displacement as the... Abuse. Yeah, the depth of it. Hmm. It's very interesting. Can we talk a little bit more about being unengaged? Because like for me, what you're saying is that there's this pendulum going from highly engaged through unengaged to highly disengaged, which is yes. again, really active. What is the dark side of lack of engagement or unengagement? When somebody is highly engaged, it creates greater profit for the company because as a customer, they will be spending more and more frequently. Or as an employee, they will be offering more discretionary effort. So putting in time when they want to, working harder, being more focused. They take less sick days. As a customer, they remain more loyal. As an employee, they remain more loyal. They're more likely to remain with the company that they're engaged by, even if there's a company that offers them a better job. The same way that a customer is likely to stick with a brand that they love, even if there is a cheaper alternative available to them. And you can apply this again to friendship. Somebody who's a highly engaged friend sticks with you throughout bad times, even when it would be convenient not to. They are an advocate for you. They really promote you to others. You know, they, they speak well of you. They don't speak badly about you. Um, they would never divulge anything negatively about you. And they are far more invested in the friendship, right? They're, they're prepared to give a lot. When somebody's unengaged, you just don't get any of that. There's two terms here. What we've just described now with that high state of engagement is what in academia is known as affective commitment. Affective commitment is when your commitment to something is based on the affection in your heart towards it, right? Essentially, it's psychological. Whereas somebody who's unengaged will only ever have what's called calculative commitment. Calculative commitment is I'm committed to you as long as it makes sense for me to do so. Essentially, they run a cost-benefit analysis in their head. So the example that I use is a cafe. You've got a favorite cafe that you go to. If an, a cafe opens that's closer and you switch to that cafe, you only ever had calculative commitment to the former cafe. Whereas if you do not go to the nearer cafe, you keep on going to the old one. Therefore, you probably got affective commitment because it's inconvenient for you to go further, but you have an affectation that makes you stay longer. And again, we can easily think of this applied to work, marriage, purchasing habits, whatever it might be, right? But then, of course, when we have somebody who's disengaged, well, now they are actively using their force against you. This is why brands fear it when customers become disenfranchised um, or, or rather disillusioned um, with the brand because then um, they begin to speak negatively. So now you've got those high values of advocacy but it's turned against you. It, it, it's not advocacy. Now it's detraction. So now we've got the other end of the pendulum and somebody's railing against you and they're using the same power and energy that comes from that psychological state all bit to do you harm rather than to do you good, um, which is, again, a worrying 
thing. The benefit, of course, though, and this is a common idea, isn't it, that you can turn the the poacher into the gamekeeper, right? So often when somebody is highly disengaged, it's actually a chance to create a highly engaged advocate if you can just do a good job with them. It's like taking the pendulum and letting it drop and it will flip round to the other side because of the weight of the energy that's invested in it. So that's um, the classic strategy really that brands should be looking to or any company should be looking to embrace is those who are most vocal are actually some of your best employees or customers just waiting for you to care enough to come to them. So many companies, they may may understand what you're saying on a cognitive level, but somehow they don't do anything about it. They just let the disengaged people remain disengaged. Why is it so? I don't presume to know the workings of large companies having never helmed one. So I, I would always be careful about speaking of CEOs or managing directors or whatever in, in such a vein. But from my work as a consultant and my work as a church minister as well, when people are detractors, it is hard work. It takes a lot of effort. There is no mass strategy for them. Generally, it requires going around to them individually. It's tiring. I used to run a conference years ago and I had a number of people that were detractors. I found that if I went to them and spoke with them, they would become massive advocates, but it took a long time. It was exhausting. It was emotionally draining. I think it also took humility to go open, to listen to their argument and hear what they were saying that was right, to be prepared to say, I'm sorry, and things like this. So it is tiring. I think it's worth it, but you've only got so much time in the day. And so again, it's just the realities of life. I've always worked hard to have people like me, but I remember um, some years ago, somebody just took a disliking to me. I just did not have the energy to do something about it. And I think, again, that's the same thing in businesses, really. If your clients come to you and ask you to help them, how do you advise them to build engagement with their customers, with their employees? Engagement is a strategy that you can put into place, certainly. But if somebody doesn't have the mindset that says, we want to be together with our customers or together with our stakeholders or together with our employees, and rather their mindset is, I just want more revenue, I want more productivity, but they don't have the mindset that says we want to actually engage, then I find it will fail. And so first of all, I listen and I'm listening to see, can I actually work with these people? Do they sincerely want to engage? Uh, and, then, and then if they do, I go along a few different tacks. One of the thing is then beginning to put training into the organization. There are strategies that we can put into place. And I've got a number of models that are in my book, actually, that I run through. So I use my, you know, I eat my own dog food. But the main bit of work is mindset. So for instance, I've just done a little bit of work with a school. That school, they want to get parents engaged. It's a new school. It's a very forward-looking school. It's an amazing place. But it's young and they've had some problems, which is inevitable. Everyone has problems. But as a result of their challenges, the teachers there have become timid. So they've not been engaging parents because they think parents don't want to engage. Right? This is a big problem. People think oh, our employees don't want to engage. Our customers don't want to engage. And so that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So because the teachers don't think parents want to engage, they approach them in a way that is begging them to be involved in the school rather than expecting them to want to be involved in the school. So that then changes the confidence with which you go about it. So now you go with a low-level confidence. You go cap in hand saying, oh, please, would you help? Well, parents pick up the desperation in that. They pick up the lack of confidence. They think this doesn't sound very energizing. I'm not going to give my time to that. They don't think it consciously. 
but subconsciously. Confidence is an effect, is a contagious phenomenon. So my work has been to change the mindset. Often, I don't even talk about engagement. I just spend time with teachers saying to them, you are awesome. Look at what you've done. Look at what you achieve. Of course, parents want to be involved in this. The only problem is you've got to realize that parents are busy. So if parents don't respond, it's not because they don't care. It's because they're busy, right? They're busy with life. They're busy with a dozen other things. And even though to you, their education of their child should be the most important thing in the world, to them it is, but everything else is also the most important thing in the world, right? And so you've got to balance all of that. So then the teachers then begin to get more confident. They go, oh, you know what? Yeah. It puts them back into that state of high engagement they had when they started, probably. And now the engagement has gone really, really high just because teachers have now got their confidence. And that is more important than any other strategy. These things are just mechanisms that support it. So it would be the same with, with employees. It'd be the same with customers. Is Ultimately, I want to look at your mindset. And that actually has lost me business. Um, I had an opportunity to work with one of the world's largest social gaming manufacturers. And when I talked about my methods, he said, well, that sounds a little bit like coaching, talking about mindset. I said, well, yeah, it would. And he didn't like that. And that was the end. He didn't hmm. like the idea that, that maybe he would have to change. I, I mean, I had an inkling of it as well, because early on in the conversation, one of the individuals there who was very senior in the organization said, you know, we don't really care how it's done. We just want to make more money. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't think this is really going to work out for me. You could just tell there wasn't a sincerity there. And I don't think it's that they're not mature. I don't think it's that they don't care. I think it's the fact that they're busy. They've probably got shareholders asking for certain things. They've got 101 things going on that they can't imagine needing to really bond with people. The trouble is one day will come your Facebook day where all of a sudden people start going, hang on a second. I'm not sure you're the neighbor next door that I really liked that I thought you were. And they begin to realize that you've perhaps been a little bit Machiavellian or whatever. And then people turn on you and then they come knocking. Oh, we really need to get them engaged. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's too late now, isn't it? Right? Because now it just reeks of insincerity and you know what it probably is. So engagement often actually is prevention, not cure. And something I, think I admire about both Microsoft and Apple is they've always known who they are as companies. They've been true to who they are as companies. They've not tried to imitate one another. I mean, occasions, you know, you've had imitations of tactics, but they've always stayed true to their brand and they've always done their best to value people, value their customer and their employees. It just shows that they've got the foundation there, right? Whereas I've always had a concern with, with Amazon. I mean, I, indeed, they've rectified some of it recently. Facebook, there always just has been a slight sense of disdain somewhere along the line. Someone I saw once tweeted this thing. Imagine what it would be like to go to work and feel loved. Well, actually, with high engagement, that's what it is. And why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we feel loved by our colleagues that we spend more time with than our children? Why shouldn't we as customers feel loved by the brands that we pay a lot of money to have their products? Well, no, I think we deserve that, that affection. Yeah, I'm engaged in a, with a very, very big corporation. And I thought that the biggest problem they have is that most of their people are run, you know, driven by fear. But you say it's like not being driven by fear is only half of the story. There's the easier one and getting to the level that you mentioned now. That's a real, real challenge. These things are really, really simple, but also really, really complex. It's that frustrating thing of sometimes the diagnosis can take a bit of time. When you find it, you go, oh, that's kind of obvious. But then also working that into an organization takes time. I mean, it's hard enough having a marriage counselor help two people change. 
let alone trying to change an organization. So again, I just got a lot of grace, a lot of room for mercy and understanding and empathy around all of this because it it takes time. And again, you cannot separate this from the fact that you are dealing with emotions all the time. You're dealing with people who have got their whole life that they're thinking about, which again, I think is a, a failure of um, the industrial complex is to appreciate that people have got a whole entire life that's going on. One, one of the things that w- that gives employees is shown to give employees high levels of engagement, just flexibility with their work hours. So it just recognizes, you know what, you just, you've got a life. And if you need to sometimes make work fit around that, then we're cool with that. And immediately people begin to become more engaged because you just, you're helping them with their life. And ultimately their life is not to work, right? But, you know, this stuff just takes time. It's messy and sticky. And as much as I try to make it clean with my very accurate models, it's messy, you know. You talk a lot about this interpersonal engagement, customers and companies, employees and employers. But there's also a, a notion of inner engagement that you mentioned in your book. Yes. Could you elaborate a little bit more about this? So I talk about there being four frontiers of engagement. And generally, we talk about employee, customer and community engagement are generally the three big ones that we talk about in professional contexts. But for me, all of them stem from interpersonal engagement, which is the way that we interact with those directly around us and ultimately intrapersonal engagement, which is the way that we interact with ourselves. Um, so I think of it like a number four and the, the space inside the four, that's the intrapersonal part. How you engage with yourself inexorably affects upon how you engage with anything else. So if you engage with yourself in an insecure manner, you will be insecure in the way that you go about the other things. If you engage yourself in a more egotistical manner, egotism will roll out in the other ways, if, and so on and so forth. So again, when I do leadership coaching, let's take this school, there I am working with the senior people in the organization, needing to work with them on their mindset and the way that they view parents. I actually think that's the most important part. And the more I think about this, the more I realize just how flipping important it is, <laughs> the way that we engage with ourselves, which isn't a term that we really use a lot, um, you know, engaging with yourself, because it seems to indicate that there's more than one of you. But I think it recognizes that you are a multifaceted individual. I mean, even just engaging with your body would be enough of a task, right? So um, I do think it's critical, but I'm still forming my ideas on that, really. It brings me to the subject of religion, spirituality, yes, and the church. Yes, of course, yes. Because spirituality is ultimately about self-engagement, right? I, I would think there there's probably not a better description of spirituality out there in terms of one word. Spirituality is self-engagement. I like that. How do you see religion building this self-engagement in people? I mean, everything that I've learned about engagement, I've learned first of all in church, actually. Um, and then I applied it into business and found it worked there. And then I applied it back into church and found that what I learned in business worked there. So I was kind of like testing it in a range of contexts before I wrote it. I think religion is exceptional at self-engagement and community engagement as well. But it's so good at it because it provides a story for us to use that guides us for it. You know, stories are this, you know, most archaic form that we have. You know, Jung would see them as forming these unconscious archetypes that we all subscribe to. And they guide us. They provide a framework for us to begin navigating the soul. 
And without a framework, it's very hard to know how to navigate something you've not navigated before. Instructions massively help. So these provide little instructions. And of course, what they do is they provide a community that's doing the same thing as you. So when you do it, it's not just you doing it, you're following how others are doing it, right? And this is any religion, not even a religion, just any group where everyone's involved in a similar practice that is in some way meditative. Um, but it can be too good at it. Hence, we can now think of, let's say, uh, Islamic State and the major atrocities that were committed and people flocking to be a part of that from all over the world. You know, Think about that for a second. People flocking to be there, wanting to be a part of that type of organization, you know, it's crazy. Um, but we also see the same thing in Nazism or communism, which are more atheistic notions. Because again, religion is just, I would say, it's just a narrative. Atheism, again, would be a narrative. Communism would be a narrative. And so that's what we're learning here is the power of these overarching stories to socially engineer stuff. And now we're in the realm of enslavement, aren't we? Just a little self-plug. I like really how these conversations that we have with very different people, like we are going back to the same touch points once in yeah. other with narratives. You had a whole uh, episode in season one about this. It's a fascinating yeah. story as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But now this, like, this addition of this social context. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I see how it uh, makes it much more powerful that way. There's a reason why. Right. So there's a reason why the social context is so strong is because when we're around others, first of all, it opens up chemicals in our brain that just don't get activated when we're by ourselves. But second of all, it provides a source of safety. So if others are doing it, ergo, it must be safe. Ergo, it must be the right thing to do. Ergo, it's what I will do. The mastery of any mass movement, particularly those that have been malevolent, is their ability to architect the social milieu to create the evil or to create the action. So it's not just their ability to influence one, it's to create the culture. And some individuals possess this skill, you know, switching to an unlikely candidate, perhaps, but people talked about Steve Jobs, that he had around him this reality, they used to call it his reality distortion field. When you're in his presence, it was his, he ruled that space. It wasn't his ability to influence an individual so much as he created this field, this environment around him. I mean, we're talking now about a cultural phenomena, right? And again, we mentioned earlier that confidence is contagious, right? So these people have got this ability to influence stuff. So I, part of my story is I spent 16 years being mentored by a, well, 13 years rather, being mentored by a particular individual in my vocation as a minister. In the end, I blew the whistle on him because I found out he was doing a whole bunch of stuff and that was very nasty. But in the year, in the years following, I began to reflect upon his relationship with me began to realize how highly sociopathic he was and how manipulative he was, but how I just couldn't really see it at the time because he was so charismatic, absolutely exceptional at manipulation. And again, using those engagement techniques, but taking them too far. There is this big difference that we keep on discussing every now and then between persuasion and manipulation, because whatever we do, We are having this conversation and you're saying certain things in order to persuade people to understand, to see engagement in a certain way. How do you see this difference? I think the difference um, between persuasion and manipulation or between engagement and enslavement 
is that persuasion and, and influence and engagement leave the door open for you to exit. And they also never base their reasoning purposefully on any logical fallacy or manipulative tool. They try to base themselves on truth and honesty, and they have an open door for you. Whereas manipulation seeks to close the doors on you. So take, for instance, when you go to a landing page and someone's really trying to sell you a shystery product, even as you try to leave the page, they'll have alerts coming up saying, do you want to leave? They're trying to shut all the doors. Whereas if you go to any reputable seller of anything and you go and onto their site and you leave, you can leave. It's fine. They don't need your sale. And I think that's, that's the marker. This is where religion is dangerous is when you get into a religious mindset, most religions have baked into them a mechanism that does endeavor to shut all the doors. It does not leave an open door for you because it wants people to remain in the religion. If you are a Christian and you begin to doubt, now I'm not saying every Christian would say this, but many would, would have the experience of, oh, if you're beginning to doubt, then that must be the devil tempting you. Now, you don't want to doubt more because nobody wants to give in to this malevolent force, do they? So you, you don't doubt. Therefore, it's got this circular logic to keep you in. Islam has it at a worse level, which is if you question it, you are an infidel, which is the worst. So you can't question it because if you question it, then you're the worst. And now you can't get out. Hinduism had the caste system and its range of closed doors to keep you there. Many other things have this, right? You know, communism had its social classes and things. So it's this closed door stuff, whereas I find that persuasion has an open door. If you look at the greatest teachers of our time, they were very open door. Socrates, Buddha, Jesus. And as much as those that have followed in their steps perhaps have then taken their teaching and made it rigid. They themselves were actually very quite liberal and progressive. I mean, I always find Jesus a fascinating character. Of course, I know his teaching the best. What we have that is attributed to his teaching, at least through the Gospels. He would teach a group of people a parable. He wouldn't give them the answer. He'd perform a miracle, and then he'd disappear. And if you're trying to build a movement or a cult, that's not what you do. What you do is you give everyone the precise answer so they don't think for themselves. After performing the miracle, you get all of them to now be baptized. And you also make sure you get all of their email addresses and you leave your cookies on their computers. But Jesus would bugger off. And I think the reason why is because I think he actually respected people enough to know that, A, people will work it out. B, working out for yourself is more important than him giving you the answer. It's fascinating that for a man who purported to be the son of God, he didn't even leave a book. Right? I mean, it's the same, the same with Buddha. He didn't write his stuff down. Socrates, only because of Plato that we are aware of him. And again, these people were very leave it or take it. I think this, this plays into biology. And one of the things that Cialdini talks about as a principle of influence is called scarcity. Scarcity is the idea that if something is less available, it becomes more valuable in our mind. When you are valuable and scarce, you don't need others. So no one likes it when, let's say, in consulting, if I'm desperate, someone can tell that I'm desperate. People sniff it, they don't like it. And that has its roots ultimately in sexual attraction, right? Sexual attraction ultimately is if you've got the best DNA, 
you will be in demand. Therefore, you do not need to be desperate. Therefore, you are scarce. Therefore, desperation is a signal that you do not have good DNA. It's a signal, therefore, that I probably shouldn't go for you. So it's this kind of ironic thing. Rather crassly, I saw a dating coach put it this way. Whoever gives the most fucks gets the fewest fucks. Which, you know, is a really crass way of putting it. But again, it's this idea of desperation. If you care too much, you actually don't get what you're after. So again, I think that with persuasion, those people genuinely have a sense of value about what they do, that they don't need you to affirm them. And they're, they're putting forward an answer. But if you don't go with it, that's okay. Because they're secure. It's the ones that are desperate to look out for. They're the ones that you're going to be worried about. And generally, they are hiding deep insecurities. Um, they're emotionally unstable. And it's when they have all these closed doors that you've got to go, all right, I'm running from that. I, I am not hanging around that. So something that I really liked, Margo, when I was at um, the College of Extraordinary Experiences with you was right at the beginning, we were given this kind of maxim of at any point you need to just say, I got to go. You can say, I got to go. And you can just go. And again, here, here we've got open door policy. So probably the, one of my problems now is I'm so sensitive to closed door policies that I won't even say there's a door. You know, I won't even create a room anymore because I'm so scared of manipulating people. So that creates a problem for me because I'm now overtuned to it. There's one thing that triggered me while you were talking. If you are in the situation that you are deeply engaged and you are desperate to be engaged, people sense this desperation. So if you are engaged, but detached a little bit, it gives a better result. What's the story there? There's a, di there's a difference between being keen and being desperate. So being keen and hungry is different to being starving. I mean, if someone's starving for food, feed them. But it's when someone says, I really need this. You know, I can see that you're putting too much of your worth into this. Whereas... Someone saying, I really love this. I really want to be there. I'm keen. I'm really, really keen. But ultimately, it's not going to affect my self-worth. That's the difference there. And again, like in a healthy relationship, let's say two people are discussing separating. I don't want you to leave me. But in the healthy relationship, I respect your autonomy. So I will put forward every argument I can. And I'll work very hard at it. But I'm not going to close the door on you because I respect your autonomy. That's the critical thing here. And that's what I don't like is when people then they put in their closed doors or at least they put in their arguments that would keep you staying when you shouldn't. So since this whole season is about uh, empowerment, this is where it's from your words, it seems to fit. So if you have this leaving the door open for people to figure out something for themselves, that's the step of empowering them, isn't it? When I talk about the three levels of engagement, I talk about the highest level of engagement being those things that do enable and empower us. You know, the things that do tend to be the most engaging are that because they give us great value. A great example would be the move towards hub economies. So the Amazon ecosystem or the Apple ecosystem or the Google ecosystem or the Microsoft ecosystem. When you get one product and then you begin to get their other things, it all works together. It's all very, very empowering. And the more that you add to it, the more empowering it becomes. The most empowering things are very open door because they recognize that you've got to own this for yourself. 
And that's where the highest levels of engagement and also the highest levels of empowerment come from. Someone said, I I forget the exact quote, but it's words tantamount to, it's only real to you when you learn it for yourself. It's important to learn from other people's lessons, but you know, you really learn it when you learn it yourself, right? So those that are the greatest teachers or the greatest empowerers, they are all about you taking ownership and making something yours. They, They don't try to be prescriptive. If we were to think about experience designers now, what experience designers must think about is what happens after the experience. Someone's going to leave. They're going to walk through the open door that you've got there. And when they do, what are you leaving them with? And are you leaving them with materials that they can use to build something in their mind that will remain and, and have some sense of your DNA upon it? Or will it just be a thing that happened once but doesn't really shape how I continue to be? Right. And again, religion is very good at this. Religion has an experience every week. Every Sunday you go to church or you go to the mosque, go to the synagogue. You receive a narrative there. Um, of course, there's this meta-narrative. There's this very big grand story. You're reminded of a few of the pieces in it. You see other people there socially. And then when you leave, that sticks in your mind and it forms the way that you live the rest of the week. And then when you come back, it's strengthened once again. Um, so that's a really is the reason why it won't go away. Is because it's so good at perpetuating itself in the minds of people that the two evolutionary traits that humans have, one is highly social. The other is we have the ability to hold concepts in the mind. And those are the most powerful things to us. Um, Nazism was a concept. Um, religion is a concept. All of these things are imagined things that live in our mind and shape us. So the most engaging things and the most enslaving things are those things that dwell in the mind which is why what your company stands for is really, really important because now you own a concept. You're not just a thing. So an iPad is just a thing. I could be done without it. What Apple try to do, of course, is they're trying to be about, well, what does this enable you to create? That's what we represent. And so 80% of a brand's value will be its brand equity. It's incredible, right? 80% of the trillion dollars that Microsoft or Apple are both worth, 800 billion of that is just down to their branding, their positioning, what they've come to represent in the mind. Same with religion, same with any of those popular concepts that we hold. You know, same with a sports team, right? A sports team is ultimately an imagined concept that you're allegiant to. You're not only loyal when you're there, you're loyal when you're not there. That's the thing now, right? It lives in your mind. I just find this endlessly fascinating. And so interestingly, the curator of TED, Chris Anderson, he did a video a couple of years ago where he talks about how to give a good TED talk. And he describes about how every good TED talk, what they do is they are recreating their idea in the minds of other people. They're not just giving you a story. What they're doing is recreating a model in the mind, um, which is why I was so profoundly influenced by Pine and Gilmore's work on the experience economy, because I saw how the frameworks that they created we're so ultimately empowering, right? Mental models are the most empowering thing that we can give someone because then you use them every single day, right? They create a, a lens with which you can now view the world. And that's what anything that we do create, right? So again, there you've got the genius behind it. Engagement and enslavement both create the opportunity for inception, right? Yes. Inception totally, cannot be done yeah. without engagement that state of openness. If somebody is unengaged, they're not bothered. So engagement, that psychological state of being together with you is important. It can't happen at the lowest level of engagement where it's just the mind. 
because it comes in and just goes. So it can only be created actually at the second level. The second level of engagement is in body, when your body's focused. And it can only be created when the senses are engaged and when you're really involved. And the reason why it can only be done then is because when more of your senses are engaged by the stimuli and your mind is now in this kind of state of flow and it's active feedback, a lot more dopamine is released. So what you're now experiencing is more memorable and more impressionable on you. You also become more open to new ideas. Mm -hmm. Then when you leave, that's when you find out if it was able to perform the third level, which is, was the thing that it planted in you strong enough to keep the top spinning or was it not strong enough? Now we're talking about how good was the experience and also did they use materials that would then go into the mind? In my book, I talk about the six levels of engagement. There are actually kind of six psychological markers. Inception happens between levels three and four, um, when someone goes from being just an actor to someone who now identifies with you. And that is known as entering the self-concept. It's a psychological idea. So take this conversation. Anyone listening to it, and particularly, you know, you two would be uh, representations of everyone listening. And I'm throwing out lots of different metaphors and ideas in the hope that one of those for each listener would be enough to spin the top enough that they go, oh, wow. And then when they finish listening and they go away, that I've been able to get something into that third level of engagement in them, which is I've left that idea, which now lives with them and sits with them and they can take it away with them. That would be my hope. But doing it with the door open, right? I'm not trying to push it. And if you disagree, cool. Whereas enslavement would now be, I would be using more Trumpian language, let's say. <laughs> I, I would be more divisive. I would be harsher. I would be looking to separate you. I'd be using splitting the idea, you know, black and white thinking on you and things like that. If I am to try to put another metaphor to what you're saying, yes. is it correct to assume that building engagement with others is like giving them ingredients and letting them cook whatever they need out of it versus and enslavement being bringing them the recipe and telling them that there's one correct way to do this stuff? Ooh, I like that. And not just saying there's only one way to cook it and you must only cook like this and getting it to now spread into every area of their life. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Engagement is here's a recipe, go and experiment. Enslavement is this is the recipe. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I would like to come back a little bit more to the role of spirituality in engagement. Yeah. How does spirituality empower? So again, just to separate engagement from empowerment, engagement is that psychological state. If something is highly engaging, then it, it is very empowering because it sticks in us and it helps us. Uh, religion generally does tend to dwell in that space because it helps create Uh, a worldview, a narrative, a structure that acts as a mental model for the way that you go about life. And mental models are really, really empowering because they save you time. Um, you know the difference between system one and system two thinking. Mental models enable you to do more and more in the system one sphere, which relieves your cognitive toll. Um, it just makes life a bit more straightforward. And with the plethora of decisions that we have to make, that's a convenient thing. There are, of course, negatives wrapped up within that. But leaving those aside for a second, let's just say it's a really, really good thing. That generally what, what spirituality does then is it does, it places more and more in the system one category. And by doing that, releases the cognitive burden for you. 
if you specifically do want to make decisions against certain things. So let's say you don't want to drink alcohol or you don't want to uh, look at pornography or these typical things that would be quote unquote vices or sins. It gives you a mechanism for handling that. So now let's say you don't want to gamble. You don't want to get drunk all the time. You don't want to be an alcoholic. Spirituality is very good at providing tools to create those changes. And let's move away from religion to spirituality. Religion is very good at those tools. Spirituality would perhaps be trying to create your own tools, right? Whereas religion would be, let's say, using the standard off-the-shelf package. And nothing wrong with that. And very often, that's a great place to start. But now let's say you want to begin customizing this and making it your own thing. So what you're going to be doing is you're going to be customizing and tweaking and, and turning that into your own thing. Typically, that would mean there's a lot of time spent in thought, meditation, reflection, things that happen to you, you give them a bit more consideration. And what that, of course, is doing is serving to reinforce those things on a kind of neuroscience level. It helps those thought patterns become more ingrained, which then helps it become more and more system one thinking for you. So that would be what's going on here. Now, some people would choose not to use the word spirituality. They would choose to use perhaps less emotive language. But you know, that's generally the process here, right? Uh, and that's a very, very old tradition. Um, you, know, you see it in the most ancient of literature. Sadly, though, I think people don't seem to do that very often. I, I don't know whether it's just today or whether it's just always been. It's only ever been a portion of society. Those may be of a particular disposition or something. But a lot of people do seem to live shallow as opposed to deep. And what I mean by that is they often don't reflect upon and consider their ways. There's this wonderful proverb in the Bible or in the Jewish Bible. It talks about, you know, the, the wise man ponders his ways, just thinks on them, takes time to reflect on them, right? And so it's going from living life by default to design. And I think the moment you decide to do that, that's some sense of spirituality, perhaps, right? What can designers learn from church and oh, from religion? I think anyone can learn an awful lot from church or religion, uh, particularly designers. First of all, you've got the routine of it. So it happens every week at the same time. And those who are really good at building churches also have additional things in the week and stuff, but all of it's done on routine, same time every week. Then you've got the routine of when you arrive, which we would more accurately describe as ritual. And again, these rituals are not just you, they are social. That to me is critical. This is why social gaming is now, of course, so great. It's what gaming has always been, has always been social, ultimately, even if you do it in your own home, you still tell others about it. So the social element really is the trick. So I think Instagram stories is a great example. When I open up Instagram, at the top of the screen, I see all the different people that are using Instagram stories to tell me about their life. So it's very encouraging to want to do my own. Now, I don't because I can't be asked ultimately. But it, all of this is saying to me, you're in the right place. People like you are using this, ergo, it's a good thing to use. So when you go to church and you see so many other people, it just affirms to you, you're in the right place. So anyone that I'm working with, I always tell them, have lots of pictures of people. And if you want to grow a particular demographic, have pictures of that demographic, right? It's just so obvious, yet so few apps seem to have pictures of people in. It just, just doesn't make sense to me. 
on an evolutionary trait, that's what we respond to as faces of people. There's this thing called the media equation where we treat media like people, which is why we make media like people. It's why the uh, Mac OS thing of having the face is just such a clever idea because we treat stuff like people. Then I think when you're in there, particularly more traditional churches are just great at creating environment. They engage the senses, whereas most retail stores weren't really doing this until more recently. But they purposefully are creating theatre for the senses here. I mean, now I think of Joe Pine and James Gilmore's book, The Experience Economy, is a great early example, though loads of people write about it now. There's theatre in it, particularly if you think about Catholic Church, which is the longest standing church body. The candles, the smell, the visuals. It is a sensory feast. You eat communion. And what's fascinating, actually, about the food element is all religions are based upon eating together. And when you eat, particularly when you eat or drink something warm, it makes you predisposed to be more interpersonally warm. So if you are holding a meeting and you want people to get on with each other, serve hot drinks. Because hot drinks (laughs) make us predisposed to be interpersonally warm with each other. But also it's around eating. Well, what happens when you're eating or drinking? Well, again, the chemicals are flowing in your brain that open you up to others. You're making it uh, an intimate act. Oxytocin is improved, which makes you bond more closely with people. So it's just good for you going to church, right? Religious people generally are a bit happier. It could just be nothing more than the fact that every week they get a massive oxytocin shot. Huge. All those people that you're around eating with, drinking with. The fact that's even wine, which makes you bond with people because now you've had these silly experiences together, right? Which is why alcohol was such a, a major thing in society. When you do it together, this now becomes an important experience that you share, right? It's why we love telling drunk stories. Because it, it bonds us to each other, right? You just can't get away from it. And it creates a special thing that we've done. And then you get into the service itself. Um, you'll have things that are repeated every single week, which become these core mental models in the mind. And they serve to organize the mind, alleviate us of psychic pain through psychic order. And by psychic, I mean a psychic as in new age psyche. But e- even if you were to take a new age religion or anything that was, let's say, even pagan, you've still got those rituals. There's things that will be said over and over again, a spell, an incantation, the same things being said over and over again. So you're reinforcing the main idea. They say that vision leaks, right? It takes every 30 days, if you've envisioned someone, that vision has leaked. So you have to keep on envisioning people, um, which is why, again, the best brands, the best companies keep on reminding you of the main thing, and they make the main thing so clearly obvious. A great example of this is Johnson & Johnson, the drug manufacturer. In the foyer of their main building, they have carved in stone their credo. And every morning, employees pass it. And it says, our first responsibility is to the customer. Mm -hmm. So you just know it. So when they faced the Tylenol scandal in the 1980s, they didn't need to think about what they did. They knew their first responsibility was to the customer because they'd already enshrined it in stone in, in their business. And then you've got the sermon. And so now you've got teaching. You've got somebody expounding doctrine to you, which is really important. But people sharing it, you've got call and response. So people are saying it themselves, which shows that the service is co-created in some way. It's endless. The Christian church is somewhat, it's, well, church in Greek is ekklesia, which was the name of the Greek council, the ekklesia. And again, all of these things ultimately just come from the hearth, the campfire, and telling stories. What? It's around a campfire. What's a campfire? Warm, Mm -hmm. which promotes interpersonal warmth amongst us, right? 
when the campfire is warm, you don't want to be anywhere else but by the warmth. So you'll sit there. So you'll engage in it. So it encourages you to be engaged. So none of this stuff is new. It's just about harnessing it really and using it. That's where the work of someone like me comes into place is my job is to help people understand stuff that we all know. I'm just trying to give people language to it. It's so obvious that we assume it's a given, but actually the art of of any teacher, really educator, is to help you know what you think is a given. Last night I watched the film Arrival with Amy Adams about these aliens arriving. It's fantastic, but there's this scene where the government want her to ask the aliens this question, which is, what is your purpose on Earth? And she said, well, I can't ask that question until we understand whether these guys even know what a question is. (laughs) And so again, you've got this thing of just, it's just so implied, of course. And it was a beautiful scene of showing that actually something that's so simple We've got a whole lot of assumptions going to us that we all think we all know, um, which again is this you know, collective unconscious, these mental models that we all abide by. But we forget that we assume them and then often we don't use them because we don't think to use them. And I think that's a problem with work often is to round back to the beginning. Maybe often people are unengaged at work because when we go to work, we switch off our humanity and we stop being human. We stop being a wife or a spouse or a a mother or a son or a friend or a lover or a fan or whatever it might be. And we become cog in the machine and we stop doing the things that actually people really want. I was at an event recently and I finished by saying, I said, look, the thing I want all of you to know, if you can take one thing away today, is you know how to engage anybody because you do it with your friends all the time. Just treat people like friends and they'll be engaged. And people were like, wow, (laughs) that's amazing. And I was like, it is amazing, even though it really shouldn't be. But there we go. Scott, just to wrap up, would there be a book that you would recommend to our audience? I'd recommend mine if they want to understand technical matters around engagement, certainly, um, which is The Shape of Engagement by Scott Gould, G-O-U-L-D. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all good ebook readers. If they want to understand engagement of employees and teams, the number one book that I'd recommend is Gung Ho by Ken Blanchard. If people want to understand engagement of people, I'd recommend Dan Pink's book Drive, which looks at self-determination theory. For engaging customers, I'd probably recommend Gallup's book Human Sigma, um, which looks at the link between engaging employees and customers together, because that really is the main thing there. If you can get that right, then you kind of win. That would be my short book recommendation. And if somebody's in a large organization, the book, The Enterprise Engagement Roadmap by Bruce Bolger would be your kind of go-to manual there. Awesome. And the last question, if you were to say, what is the motto, the thing that defines who you are? My personal motto is it's all about people. Thank you so very much. It was an amazing conversation, Scott. Oh, thank you. Well, you greatly honor me with not only your request to have me, but also those words. That's really special. Thank you. And um, I'm privileged to be able to talk about my subject matter. Um, So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. You can say, I got to go, and you can just go.